Good evening. First reading tonight is from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 35. Like a light that is shining in the darkness is that prophetic word. Think about Mary as we read these words. No doubt she thought about some of those promises when she said, Glory to God who remembers his promises to have mercy over his people. Isaiah said that the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. The Hebrew word for that highway is mesila, maslul, something that is straight, like an arrow. You cannot miss it. No twisting, no turning, no shadows, no changes in him. Just stick with him. A mesila will be there, maslul. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go on about it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed shall walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Our second reading is Psalm 146, verses 4 through 9. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. 
On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading today is found in Matthew chapter 11. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read in Isaiah that the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and they shall lame, or those who are lame shall leap like a deer in the tongue of the dumb, singing for joy. Now hear Matthew 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothing? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen another greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's um, pray. Father, I ask that the, um, the words from my lips and the meditations of my heart 
may be acceptable in your sight and may bring life to your people this evening. Amen. It's the third um, Sunday in Advent, and um, you might expect, or we all should expect, a Christmassy sermon or a reading that's going to get us ready for the Christmas season. But once again, we're back to John the Baptist and um, the relationship of uh, John and Jesus. And it's actually a perfect, perfect reading uh, for Christmas because it's going to clarify, really, I think, in many ways, in in a very succinct way, yes, why Jesus is born and what he comes what he comes to do. Last week, if you remember, we we talked about uh, John the Baptist, his message of repentance. We talked about the intimate connection between redemption, between redemption and repentance, that redemption always follows repentance. We also mentioned how John and Jesus shared a common, maybe theological, cultural, biblical understanding uh, about repentance, that while in the Greek, the word repentance is literally to change your mind, right? As Jews, they would have understood that repentance is more than just a change of mind. It is making a U-turn, okay, and going, 180 degrees in a different direction. There are times when repentance, yes, is a reorientation or a change of mind. And I think maybe we pick up on that theme, uh, we pick up on that theme towards the end. But the figure of John the Baptist in this passage is actually quite tragic. Because John was a victim of his own theology, or actually the theology or the common popular theology of his day. And while he understands the importance of Jesus, he doesn't understand the messianic agenda. And that, by the way, is oftentimes the issue. We as Christians will think, yeah, well, people don't get Jesus or they don't understand Jesus or they don't accept Jesus. Well, there are a lot of people who know that Jesus or think that Jesus is quite special or unique or different. But there's a, many of those same people don't want to go along with this program or don't want to go along with what he teaches, right? Or don't accept the messianic agenda. And that's very often the case in this country. You know, there's a lot of p- people who will say, yeah, Jesus is just all right, to quote the old song by the birds. Yeah, but I don't believe he was the Messiah because he didn't do A, B, C, and D, right? So the issue becomes the Messianic agenda. And oftentimes that Messianic agenda of Jesus brings, not well, not only brought offense 
in his day and age, it still brings offense in our day and age as well. And so let's see how that works, especially it says when John uh, heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent disciples to ask him. And here is a really, um, I think it's, it's a, a really beautiful example of the way that Jews in the first century would have a theological debate. Because um, thanks to the, the, uh, the, the uh, revolt of the Maccabees or the time of the Maccabees, if not before, you had a wide, uh, widespread distribution uh, of the scriptures in Israel. And uh, a school, I mean, a very primitive, rudimentary school system was set up throughout the country. And young boys, usually uh, 5 to 10, 5 to 11, uh, went to school and were taught to read. Um, and uh, what they read was simply the scripture. They would start with the book of Leviticus, and they would read, they would then memorize large chunks of scripture, maybe between the age of five and 10, five and 11, and they would go back to their fathers and learn a trade and prepare for, prepare for marriage. Uh, this learning seems to have taken place with young girls, uh, but at home, uh, in the context of home, either a father or a mother uh, would uh, teach the scriptures. And no one had an pocket NIV or ESV. Nobody had the scriptures on their phone. So if you wanted to hide the word of God in your heart, you had to do so by memorizing the text. And of course, that, the scripture was reinforced, yes, in the synagogue um, and uh, at the festivals, pilgrimage to the temple, uh, and even more. So when you when you wanted to discuss uh, an issue and you wanted to quote a scripture, because you had a, you might say, a biblically literate public, not everyone, but a fair number of people, you could quote just a phrase or a snippet. And everybody would know what came before and what came after. And Jesus, of course, is doing this all the time. He walks around and he calls himself the son of man but he's referring to the figure in Daniel chapter seven. But he doesn't say, now I want you to take out your Bibles and I want you to start at verse nine. And I want you to notice such and such and this and that. And I want to read to you these passages that relate to me. He just has to hint, right? And he does so by saying the son of man, and then in Luke's gospel, he'll say, comes and seeks and save the lost. Where does that come from? Daniel 34, sorry, Ezekiel 34. And people would know what came before, what came after. Yes, you didn't have to spend a lot of time quoting the verse. And so here, John and Jesus are gonna have a marvelous, marvelous discuss Bible discussion. And you'll see, perhaps, why John is disappointed, why John has what might be his uh, moment of doubt. And there's been a lot of Bible commentary all through church history 
trying to somehow excuse John or trying to somehow say, well, it wasn't really as bad as, as we think. I, I don't believe that. I believe John doubts because he doesn't see Jesus uh, doing what he expects. And what does he expect? He says, are you the coming one? Now, where does the phrase come from? And we think, oh yes, it's all about the Messiah. But when you look for the phrase, the coming one, for example, in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from the sea to the river and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, what's happening in all that? Yes, there's this figure who's coming, but the figure is coming when there is some kind of uh, military action that brings judgment. And then in Malachi, and by the way, Jesus points to John as being a fulfillment of this verse See, I will send Malachi 3.1. See, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Wonderful. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will take, he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Ooh. The coming now has fire. What about uh, verse 5 of the same chapter? So I will come near to you with judgment. Well, that's not very helpful. And then what about chapter 4 of Malachi? Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a forest, a furnace, right? All the arrogant and every evil doer will be stubble. And the day, and that day that is coming will set them on fire. Oh, so we have coming and fire. Verse 5 of the same chapter. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, or I will come and strike the land with a curse. The coming one brings judgment, and the coming one brings fire. And this is John's understanding, and it's a very popular understanding of the, uh, it's a very popular messianic expectation of his day. And if you're not convinced, I think all you have to do is read John's message and these early chapters of, uh, of the Synoptic Gospels, especially Matthew and Mark, sorry, Matthew and Luke, right? In, in chapter 3 of Matthew, John says uh, the following. He says, um, uh, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every fruit that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me uh, will come one who is more powerful 
than, than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is, are you the coming one? This is shorthand for, for these verses, for a messianic redemption that's really going to clean up the town. You know, transformation isn't enough. There's so much wickedness. There's so much injustice. Yes, reform's not going to do it either. We need a, t a new, total, and fresh start. And John's basic message, as I understand it, is basically it's one of blessing and one of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. But it's one, and I got into trouble for saying this one uh, in one sermon many years ago, but I'll risk saying it again. Right. I'll, I'll live dangerously. It's Pentecost or a, not the, a holocaust. What is a holocaust? Is a burning up, right? There's going to be the fire of the Holy Spirit or there's going to be the fire of judgment. This is the message of John. Now, how does, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, I, I have a whole book here on reform, not reform, on systematic theology. John, and I want you to read these 360 pages so I, I can show you where you're wrong. No, Jesus also has his verses. And his verses that come from Isaiah, yeah, Jesus is going to say, I have a different agenda. I have a different program here. And here's my program. He said, go, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. And here Jesus says something very, very strong. If we assume Jesus did his teaching in Hebrew or quite a lot of his uh, teaching in Hebrew, then this becomes a lot stronger than either the Greek or the English. And here in the English it says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Or blessed is the man who's not offended because of me. Or the man who doesn't stumble because I'm not doing what we expect or what you think I should be doing. Right? Because to take offense in this case or to stumble in this case is to fall into error or to fall, um, to fall into sin. Right? Jesus comes preaching right, the kingdom of heaven and he's taking you know, taking phrases from Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, and other places, and telling John, this is my messianic agenda. You know, right? It is not one of judgment. It is one of, rest it is one of restoration. Now, we better stop for a moment, okay, because it is sometimes we have recreated or created for ourselves you know, a love, peace, and Woodstock Jesus. A Jesus who would never judge somebody or a Jesus who would never hold anyone accountable. There are plenty of passages, plenty of passages in the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, and not to mention the epistles that remind us that Jesus will be the judge on the last day. 
and that all of us will have to be to give an account. But Jesus is simply saying, John, not only has your theology led you astray, but so too has your timetable. So too has your, 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 this messianic expectation of what you think I'm going to do. Because there is a judgment, but the judgment is delayed. Jesus presses the pause button. And by the way, here it's just talking about the big judgment. Okay? There's still lots of little judgments that happen. You smoke cigarettes, several packs a day, well, you most likely will die from lung cancer, right? You have a nationalistic, militaristic program, well, you know, you're going to bring war and destruction on yourself or destruction, you know, on uh, other people. You, um, well, let's be political. You murder, you abort tens of millions of girl babies, and you will end up with huge social problems. Okay? So it's not saying that sometimes you don't reap what you sow. It's here judgment and the final judgment that brings, you know, the end of the world or brings, you know, the, the age of the world to come. Jesus says, okay. And so what is this divine, what is this program? Right? What is this program? It's Jesus, it's, it's the kingdom of heaven. But have we, have we really ever asked ourselves, why is it that Jesus, why is it that Jesus spends so much time healing? What is it about healing that's important? I mean, it's a nice thing to do for people who are sick. Yeah, what is it about deliverance? Why is a, a quarter of the ministry of Jesus is dealt with dealing with the demonic? Right. What is it about teaching people how to get along with each other? Right. With an emphasis on mercy and love, forgiveness and generosity. Right. All of this has to do with the fall. Right. All of this is, is a revert, the beginning right, of redemption. It's the reversal of the fall. Now, being good evangelicals, what is the fall? The fall is Adam and Eve. It's Eve sinned and we're, and all the consequences are now, have come upon us. And that's what we focus on in the West. But in Eastern Christianity, they understand that there were three falls in the book of Genesis, not free falling like in skydiving, but three, like in T-H-R-E-E. -E. I have to be careful here because people are thinking I'm going to start, you know, break out into a Tom Petty song. But <clears throat> what are the three falls? Okay, first, there is sin. Yes, but second, men and women die. And third, this is what happens in Genesis chapter 6, we become subject, sub, uh, we become influenced or, or at times uh, controlled by the demonic, yes, by spiritual, malicious spiritual forces. And God in his mercy, yes, uh, with the people of Israel, he takes, you might say, responsibility to deal with sin, death, the demonic.
until the time Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes healing and casting out demons, right, and um, helping people to understand how to uh, live together, this, before, even before the cross, okay, which Jesus does die, all right, as an atonement for our sins, and I'm not minimizing the cross, but the, the, the healing and deliverance activities, the restoration work of uh, Jesus of Nazareth, right, is connected to what we read about in Genesis, right? And John wants judgment, but Jesus says judgment is not yet. It is a time for mercy. And let's just go a little bit further about John and then look at the, the practical application of all this. Um, we don't know how John takes this or how understands this. John's disciples were leaving, and Jesus doesn't want to uh, give the impression that even though John has something of a wrong timetable and even a wrong theology, that uh, he's being maybe too tough or too hard on John. Because here's he says that, um, he tells us that um, John uh, is not only Elijah, as prophesied in the book of Malachi, that among uh, women there's been, uh, uh, there's certainly been nobody, uh, nobody greater. And that John is now, is gonna talk about John as being the key turning point, you might say, in all of salvation history. But with all the, that praise and all that, um, uh, with all those, you might say, that all those accolades, yes, he says the following. Um, It says, among those born of women, not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yeah, John the Baptist was great, but John the Baptist was not in the Jesus movement. It's not a question of John the Baptist with whether he went to heaven or didn't go to heaven. People ask me that question all the time. People worry, get kind of worried and say, Jesus said John wasn't in the kingdom of heaven. Well, where did he go when he died? For Jesus, as we, I think, we, uh, well, at least I hope we all remember, yeah, 85% of the time that he talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in the Gospels, yes, including the Gospel of John, he's talking about a current reality. He's talking about God, the pre God, God is God's presence, or, or God being present in Him, and God through Jesus starts to take control. He starts to rule, and He starts to reign. And where you have the presence of the Lord, and people who are willing, yes, those of us who are willing to say yes. And again, it usually starts with repentance, or repentance comes in somewhere along the way, right? That presence is redemptive. 
the work of restoration begins, a work of healing begins, a work of uh, deliverance begins to happen. Yes, that's the, that is the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is also the place, it's not just an activity or a, uh, or a verb, it's also the place where the Lord is reigning. And where the Lord reigns in the lives of people or the lives of a community, then that, com that community is known as the kingdom of heaven. The people who, are made, who have made Jesus king and are allowing him to rule, that movement, that camp, that community, that is, that is the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is that John, he was the last of the prophets, and after John came the days of the kingdom of heaven. John wasn't, he was great, but he's not in my movement. And you know, even the least, the smallest, most insignificant person in the, move, in, in the, in the Jesus movement, in the Jesus community, is, is greater than John the Baptist, yes? And it's a reminder, yes, a reminder to us as disciples, yes, what a privileged status we have as being followers, being followers of Jesus. You know, there's an old Jewish Midrash, and the, and the Midrash said, used to, said that the lowliest servant girl who was at the Red Sea actually was greater than Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Why was that the case? Because at the Red Sea, the, the kingdom of heaven was manifested. You may remember the, the song of Miriam. She says that as the children of Israel crossed the sea, she said, um, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the first mention of God's kingship. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So, what does this mean? To, what is this? What is, how do we apply this today? I mean, it sounds all very interesting. Yes, John doesn't quite have the, John is used by God. He's preparing the nation to get ready, but he doesn't quite fully understand God's timetable, and he doesn't fully understand who the Messiah was. Very interesting. But it, can it uh, not be true, or is it not true, that we can equally be like John the Baptist? We can equally have wrong expectations and a wrong understanding of who, of, um, of who Jesus is. Right? And those expectations can be very dangerous. Um, and we can easily, easily take offense because somehow Jesus doesn't live up to uh, either what we've been taught or what we hope for. And um, the consequences can sometimes be quite scary. And so what are some of those popular expectations, yeah? Well, Maybe one is, well, Jesus certainly must return in my lifetime. He has to come back. 
The rapture is going to happen any day now. And you know what? I'm not going to suffer. And I'm not going to have to live through tribulation or persecution. And certainly nobody's ever going to ask me, you know, to put my life on the line. Yes, for, you know, for the Messiah. Or, you know, um, if I become a, a Christian, God's surely going to ensure that I have a perfect marriage and that all my children, you know, will be raised, uh, you know, will turn out to be successful and uh, have straight white teeth and get, get, get good educations, whatever it may be. There's going to be domestic bliss. You know, um, I deserve so much more in life. That's very typical of most of us. I deserve more than I'm, I, I'm, I get. You know, the way, the way people treat me or the way they don't appreciate me. And you know what? Jesus is going to appreciate, Jesus is going to guarantee that. You know, Jesus is going to guarantee that. Yeah. These, uh, these are expectations that, that uh, you know, that, that, uh, that many of us have, at least in, in maybe this part of the world. Um, you know, um, Jesus has to guarantee my, my flourishing and my human development. Yes, after all, he wants to bless me. And bless me. And if he doesn't, if he's not blessing me, I'm going to go to another church and another ministry. And uh, I'm going to watch another movie, you know, <clears throat> or I'm going to get another job, whatever, whatever it may be. It doesn't work for me anymore, is what uh, so often. Oh, and surely Jesus is a conservative and he approves, or a liberal, or a leftist, or a progressive or in the Labor Party, or whatever. Surely he approves of, my polit of these politics. And boy, is he against those other people. And uh, unquestionably, you know, Jesus is for my country. And uh, we may have to go to war with that other country because they're unrighteous and they're wicked. And uh, the Lord has to be in this. You know, the old Bob Dylan song, you know, with God on our side. And all through history, Christian history and the history and other people, yeah, God is with us, so we're going to attack another country or, you know, we're, we're going to go off and, you know, uh, colonize somebody else because, again, right, it's this, these, you might say, false, <clears throat> false expectations. It's always kind of amazing to us when we discover, which we eventually do, that our enemies are not God's enemies. Our enemies are not God's enemies. But boy, do can we get, whether it's our politics or our national identity or ethnic identity, boy, can we get it uh, uh, really mixed up. Yeah, and uh, you know, Jesus is full of grace and mercy, and um, he's not going to hold me to account because, after all, he always forgives my sins, and I've got a guaranteed, I've got a guaranteed ticket to, to, um, to heaven. You know, um, 
all of those and more make it when, when we come to um, reality it makes it and we find ourselves being offended either by uh, our um, being by, by the Lord himself who doesn't somehow live up to what we think we need or by the Lord's people um, it's very easy to fall into error it's very easy to fall into sin and that's why Jesus said we mentioned earlier blessed is the person who's not who doesn't find themselves and at the end of the day at the end of the day the Messiah we want like right John the Baptist or you know in the 11th century with the Crusaders the Messiah we want is not as oftentimes you know um, not the Messiah that uh, we actually we actually need and uh, I remember uh, someone who was offended in the scripture, right, who took offense. And uh, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter announced, you're the Messiah. Yes. And Peter said, you know, Jesus, I love you so much. I've got a beautiful plan for your life. And uh, it's certainly not to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and die. Yes. And, of course, Jesus rebukes him. And he says, Satan, you're right, the one who opposed, the, the, the opposer. He says, Satan, uh, get behind me. And of course, Peter, Jesus has to say, tell Peter, Peter that he is, uh, uh, well, he tells him at least at another time that he will, the devil wants to sift him like wheat. And uh, Jesus is praying for him. But that's when Peter that's when Peter becomes susceptible, right, to being attacked by the devil or being deceived by the devil, who again comes to steal or to kill or to rob, to rob us of our faith, to rob us of our relationship with the Lord. And I think what we learn, I hope what we learn from all of this is that very simply, we need a reorientation. And it's an invitation, I issue, we issue an invitation, for us to come to the Lord. Right. All those fantasies we have, all that, those false theologies, theology that comes either out of a personal brokenness or comes out of our culture, right? right? Because we always love to make Jesus, or to, we always love to, follow a Jesus that looks like the culture uh, in which we live. That's always the comfortable thing to do. Or a kind of follow a Jesus that we construct that's, that, uh, that we personally like. And some of that may be good, but very often it doesn't conform to the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture and the Jesus that's continually revealed by God through the Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, yeah, let us not take offense and let us um, ask the Lord to, um, right? Let us invite the Lord. Let us invite God constantly, I think daily, weekly, monthly, yes, 
to ensure or to guarantee that uh, the, the Jesus we follow, yeah, uh, is not one um, or is not a Jesus in which we've built false expectations on. Again, so we're not offended, so we give no place to the devil, and that um, we can protect the relationship that we have uh, with him. And uh, when surprising things come along that somehow don't fit, you know, these expectations, we're not shaken and, and we, don't lose, uh, we don't lose our faith, as I think so many are doing in the day in which we live. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we just, Lord, um, confess that we are so susceptible, like John the Baptist, having a false understanding, a false expectation, Lord, the wrong kind of timetable, and Lord, instead of this being something minor or something of a little importance, Lord, we recognize that it can be hugely significant and have uh, serious consequences. So Lord, you have the words, uh, you, you indeed have the words of life. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we will receive life from you. And Father, we just ask that um, we will come to a more deeper and a more mature understanding of who your son is. And Lord, we pray that um, we'll be able to repent in a way that will bring us a reorientation and a clear understanding, Lord, a clear expectation, Lord, that um, the Messiah that we so often want right, is not really the Messiah that we need, the one that, the Savior that you've provided for each one of us. And we do ask these things so that uh, your son Jesus will be glorified in our life. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.